everybody, and welcome to another episode of Grow It Minnesota. Today, the topic is turf. We're going to talk about spring lawn care, no mo may, turf alternatives, and bee lawns. So if you enjoy watching your grass grow, this is the episode for you. All right, well, today my guest is James Wolfen of Twin City Seed, and we're going to talk all about lawns. So, uh, James, let's thanks very much for being on the podcast. Tell me a little bit about what Twin City Seed does and maybe a little about your own background in lawns and horticulture, because I understand you're from New York City where there aren't a lot of lawns. <laughs> so. Yeah, yeah. So I'm definitely a, a New Yorker, a Queens, New York boy at heart. Uh, there actually is a lot of lawn acreage out in the New York City metropolitan area across the board, surprisingly, where we certainly don't have as much like maybe native plant land coverage. You know, we don't have the prairies like we've got in Minnesota or the forested areas, but there's a lot of urban and suburban acreage. So lots of that is planted with turf grass. That being said, that is nowhere near where my interest in turf grass and kind of landscaping uh, came about. For me, it all started with a focus in uh, pollinator conservation where when I was an undergraduate at the University of Delaware, I got this really great research technician job working for a professor. Her name is Dr. Deborah Delaney. And we looked at the foraging patterns of honeybees. So that kind of really just opened up this whole new world to the value of pollinators, the foods that they eat, and how we can integrate those flowers into our landscapes. Uh, when I eventually moved to Minnesota, it was for my master's degree, where I studied with Drs. Marla Spivak and Dr. Eric Watkins. So I bet a lot of the listeners for of your show are familiar with Marla's name, where she is the lead professor at the Bee Research Lab at the University of Minnesota. Uh, I guess now co-lead with Dr. Dan Caribou as well. Uh, but a name that folks might not be quite as familiar with, I hope they're familiar with it, is Dr. Eric Watkins, where Eric is the uh, PI, the lead professor of the Turfgrass Science Lab. And where those two kind of overlap is they worked on this project together called the Bee Lawn Project. This kind of idea that we have so much turf grass planted in Minnesota, planted throughout the United States. How can we be better, excuse me, how can we be better managing our turf grass areas to support pollinators and to just more sustainably manage these landscapes? So a student before me, his name is Ian Lane. He kind of figured out what species in terms of grasses and flowers work within a bee lawn. And I came in to figure out what bee communities actually use these bee lawn flowers. So after that, I worked at Metro Blooms where I did all sorts of environmental education related to all things planting for pollinators. And I'm with Twin City Seed, where our focus across the board is whenever someone needs a solution that requires seeding, whether it be for agriculture, whether it be for native plantings or lawns, Twin City Seed is kind of there to, to get you whatever it is that you need. Uh, where I first came in, came to be introduced to Twin City Seed was they were the first organization to kind of see this bee lawn idea and say, hey, this is something that we want to make available to the world. So after a few years of working for Metro Blooms and kind of, you know, having these conversations with Twin City Seed about how to make that a reality, I came on full time with Twin City Seed to really take that idea, you know, uh, full focus. How can we take this beelon idea, something that promotes sustainability and pollinator conservation and really bring it to the masses? Yeah, and it's really catching on, too. But let's let's just start out talking with like a traditional turf lawn which are mostly Kentucky bluegrass, correct? I, or what's the species that's in that lawn most of the Yeah, time? that would be correct. So the most recent data that we have, at least in the Twin Cities that we have on what grasses are being used locally here in Minnesota, uh, I believe it's about 75% uh, of the turf grass used in the Twin Cities is Kentucky bluegrass. 
the second most prominent species is fine fescues, a species that the university's turfgrass science lab is a very big proponent of. But even that species is only about 10% of lawns planted in the state of, excuse me, in the Twin Cities. So there's a lot of Kentucky bluegrass. There's other uh, turfgrass options as well, but they're not nearly as prevalent, at least not yet. Yeah. And the Kentucky, I mean, it, it is kind of an intense crop to maintain. Um, and so if in the spring, so we're this, we're recording this in May and it's actually going to go up in a few days. So what would people be doing if they're caring for a traditional Kentucky bluegrass type lawn at this time of bluegrass lawn? Yeah. So this will vary from person A to person B based on your goals. For me, I always come at turf grass and turf grass science through a lens of sustainability. So for me, if I'm trying to think of what I'm doing, uh, if you are working with a new planting, that's where you might want to consider using a fertilizer with a little bit of phosphorus, of course, checking your local soil levels to see if you even need that phosphorus in the first place. Minnesota has very progressive phosphorus laws that are a great asset to the state. Um, if you have an established lawn and you want to get it to green up, this is an okay time to put down some fertilizer if need be. But I always like to think that you should have your soil amendments and your management plants across the board be guided by a soil test, where I think whether it's your lawn, a garden, a native planting, a soil test is the best $20 you could spend in gardening, in landscaping. Right. And most of us do not need phosphorus in the Cor- Twin Cities. Correct. We've, we're in, <laughs> There's a lot we're of in farmland. <laughs> We've got these fertile soils that are chock full of phosphorus. Where uh, And that's, that's the beauty of the soil test. If you need it, the soil test will tell you. If you don't need it, the soil test will tell you. It's, it's the best investment. $20 in the world of landscaping is is not going to be your biggest concern. Yeah. Now, and a lot of people will put down a pre-emergent herbicide right now. So pros and cons of doing something like that. So with a pre-emergent herbicide, um, yeah, it's a very nuanced question where if your goal is to have a pristine, you know, aesthetics is your your top dog and you know that you've had a history of weed pressure, crabgrass, um, really any unsort, any sort of unwanted nuisance in the lawn. Yes, those pre-emergent herbicides are going to do the trick. Something with like a prodiamine will knock out those unwanted species. Uh, do note that if you do put something like that down, you should wait at least three months before putting down uh, your turf grass or really any sort of vegetation. But that being said, if you're thinking about conservation, sustainability, you might want to think twice before using those products, where in my opinion, the best way to have a weed-free, a weed-free lawn is to simply have a dense, healthy, robust stand of turf grass, where even for folks that don't want turf, they want to minimize their lawn and replace it with something more sustainable it's still important that where you have turf, it's densely planted because it can really keep out those invasive species. If you're a gardener who's been having trouble with creeping Charlie or any sort of weed that can really take over a lawn, it likely got in into those bare patchy spots. So having a densely planted lawn, I kind of view it just as important as it is for your lawn on the whole. It's also just like a shield against those aggressive invasive weeds. Yeah. What do you think about, and I don't, I don't see this promoted as much as it was maybe 10, 15 years ago, which is uh, corn gluten meal Yeah, as a pre-emergent herbicide. So corn gluten meal, I, I'm admittedly not as well versed in it as I should be, but I have been told that it is a sustainable option that can be used and used effectively. Um, that being said, when in doubt, I always like to refer to the university's turf grass science lab. 
Um, Maggie Ryder, the Turfgrass Extension agent there, is a wealth of knowledge, a fantastic professional in the field. Um, I know they put out all sorts of really great educational content to Turfgrass professionals, to residents, where I would really check out what the lab has to say about the different options there, including corn, gluten, meal, uh, rather than giving my own opinion where uh, I'd rather direct you to the true experts on the matter there than kind of just give a not 100% confident recommendation myself. Yeah. I'll see if I can find a good link to what they say about corn mm-hmm. gluten meal. I did use that when my kids were little. I thought, oh, I got kids. I'm going to put this corn gluten meal. And it did work. Um, I had great grass. I think it worked better as a fertilizer than it did as a, a, a herbicide, but it did yeah. work. So. Is just within the world of fertilizers, they don't all function the same. There's fast release fertilizers and slow release fertilizers. With a fast-release fertilizer, all of the nitrogen, you know, the nutrients are made available all in one big, you know, event. It's, it's you know, as the name indicates, a fast-release. What can be more sustainable if we want to really, you know, prevent, like, the leaching of nutrients out of our landscape where no one wants their nitrogen to end up in a nearby body of water? That's not good for your lawn. And more importantly, it's not good for the environment. Slow-release fertilizers will release those nutrients over time such that more of it's going to stay in your lawn, less of it's going to leach off. It's a much more sustainable option there. So just some food for thought for any uh, lawn folks that might be listening in on this. Yeah. And so so what would be a slow-release fertilizer? You're thinking of something chemical that you'd buy, or would it be more uh, some other product? Oh, there's all sorts of providers for it. I would say your best bet is to just go into your local garden center and ask them what slow-release fertilizers they have available. Okay. Yeah, because if you've got thin turf, which then maybe that's something you would want to try just to get it to beef up a little. Yeah, yeah, where it's definitely a, a good practice where if you if you need a little help within your lawn, you know, applying a little bit of fertilizer, but being as mindful as possible when you do put those products down. Um, so let's talk, you know, we've had this very, very cold spring and, um, you know, uh, my grass hasn't started hardly growing at all. So I don't think people have started mowing yet. Um, when should they start mowing in spring? And um, and how high should you mow? I mean, should you mow it high or mow it low? What, what about mowing advice do you give people? So I would say this is something that's going to vary greatly from person to person. As I mentioned before, I'm always viewing this through a lens of sustainability. And I, and one thing that will actually apply to all of us is a great rule to follow in the world of mowing is the rule of one third. You never want to remove more than one third the total height of your lawn. So for me, someone who values sustainability and who really wants to reduce mowing and lawn inputs, I really highly encourage folks to wait until their lawn reaches about six inches in height and cut it down to four inches in height, at least for the first mowing, where in addition to one, allowing you to mow less frequently, for that first mowing event, what it'll really allow you to do if you let your lawn grow just a little bit taller to that six inch height is you'll also get better um, root establishment. Those roots will grow down deeper into the soil, which will make your lawn more resilient across the board. If we think about why sometimes lawns show drought stress, it's because they are uh, there's a lack of water. If you have a deeper, more complex root system, you've got more water available to you. You're not as dependent on frequent irrigation. Um, so what I would say is for at least the first mowing, grow out to six, cut back to four if your focus is on sustainability or really across the board. Um, then we can think about what your personal goals are. If you want to have a premium on aesthetics, you want to have that you know truly gorgeous kind of traditional lawn look, 
then still follow that rule of one third. Let your lawn grow up to three inches, cut back to two inches. And for me, I would say, you know, I like letting it grow out a little bit longer. There's two mowing regimes I often recommend to folks who have sustainability in mind, and that's either letting it grow out to four and a half inches and cutting back to three, or even if you're willing to go a little bit further, letting your lawn grow out to six inches and cutting back to four. It'll let you uh, mow less frequently. You're not burning as many fossil fuels. That's a great idea. I mean, I like the look of a longer lawn and letting it go a little. Um, but let's talk about this no mow May, which is people shouldn't are supposed to let their lawn grow all the way till June 1st. Um, what would be the pros of doing that? And what are some of the risks of doing that? And sustainability is always my goal when I'm thinking about our lawns. That being said, no mow may, like you said, it's got its pros and its cons. It's a little bit of a loaded question, even I would say. So we can use this year as an example and then look at kind of like a broader timeline. So this year, as you already mentioned, we've had a cold onset to spring. Our soils are cool. We're not experiencing too much grass growth, at least not yet. I don't know if you've looked at your forecast. We're going to get some warm weather. But um, but yeah, the soils are cold. We haven't seen too much grass growth where there's probably less risk to refraining from mowing through May. Your grass isn't likely to get super, super high. Then again, we've got plenty of the month of May left. So TBD remains to be seen. But um, yeah. but across the board, let's say we were to look at a typical, a more typical spring with slightly warmer weathers. What we would expect is that this would be the prime time for grass growth. And if you were to refrain from mowing throughout the entirety of the month, only to then mow on June 1st or whenever you decide to do your first mow after no mow May, uh, you would be cutting off a whole lot of your lawn. I mentioned before that rule of one third in a typical year, it'll be extremely difficult to follow that rule of one third uh, if we have a typical May with typical grass growth. And what you want to avoid is if your lawn grows out to eight or 10 inches and you try to cut it back to three inches, you're going to be imparting so much stress onto that lawn. It will at best be extremely stressed. At worst, the lawn area may die. And of course, this is all for sustainability. Novo May is all about kind of trying to think about how we can more sustainably manage our lawns. That being said, if we go through all of this work just to then kill our lawns in June because we implemented Novo May, that is going to lead to bare soil, which can have all sorts of ramifications in terms of soil erosion and stormwater runoff, which is everything that these eco-conscious community members, myself included, want to avoid. So I, when I think about Novo May, my two senses, I think no mow may opens the door to an extremely important conversation where across the board, whether it's May, June, July, any month within the growing season, we should really be thinking uh, more openly about how we manage our lawns, that there's really room for flexibility in how we manage our lawns. So for me, I would say I personally don't subscribe to no mow may, but that's only because the, my personal philosophy is I subscribe to let's implement more sustainable lawn care practices across the board. This doesn't have to be something that's confided strictly to May. This is something that we can do throughout the growing season. And I mean, just leaving your lawn a little longer, as you point out, and that makes you mow less. I think we should have no mow July because that's when the lawn is just sitting there. 100% so, correct. You know. Where, of course, um, a, a catchy phrase like a no mow may, no mow X, Y, Z, it catches on a lot easier than me saying, let your lawn grow out to six inches, then cut it back to four inches. Or 
be more mindful with your mowing, take a height-based approach rather than doing it once every seven to 10 days. But you're exactly right where the hotter it is, um, the less frequently you will have to mow. Where uh, northern climate turf grasses typically grow best, grow fastest at temperatures between 60 and 75 degrees Fahrenheit. So just like you were kind of insinuating when we have those warmer temperatures in July, it's far less likely that we're going to have to mow. So I think no mow may, it's a fantastic concept, but maybe we could be meeting the goals of a no mow may. The goal being more sustainable lawn care practices just by kind of, you know, educating ourselves better, knowing more about how grass works and thinking about how can we best reduce our mowing without harming the health of our lawn, in fact, while benefiting the health of our lawn. So let's talk about people who want to kind of get away from the traditional lawn and do, I know you've got a great interest in bee lawns, for example. So tell people, you know, what is a bee lawn? What are the kinds of plants you would have in a bee lawn? So the basis of a bee lawn starts with low growth fescue, where when I'm talking about sustainability in the world of turf grass, something that's also incredibly important to consider is how many different species there are and how they function differently from one another. So you brought up Kentucky bluegrass earlier. Kentucky bluegrass is admittedly a species that kind of needs to be babied. It wants its water. It wants its fertilizer. It's what we would call a high input species. These low growth fine fescues comparatively require far less water, require one-sixth the fertilizer, grow far more slowly. So they only need to be mowed three to four times per year rather than once every two weeks or so like a Kentucky bluegrass. And what a bee lawn does is it takes that very sustainable base and it adds in low-growing wildflowers. Dutch white clover, creeping thyme, self-heal, even a new native bee lawn mix that I just recently kind of put together. Um, and then all of the flowers in the original bee lawn mix start to bloom at three inches or lower in height with the new native mix, six inches and lower in height. So here what we're able to do is take these sustainable lawns and add some pollinator-friendly forage to them. So something that I don't want to, you know, convolute, these are in no way a substitution for a native planting or a prairie full of beautiful, diverse wildflowers. But if we're simply seeking to enhance the uh, ecological value of our lawns, it's a really fantastic option to consider, both for reducing inputs and for supporting our pollinators. Right. And so a fescue, but it's a short grass that grows slowly. Is it similar to a sedge? It's actually just much more similar to turf grasses, where uh, okay. fine fescue, as the, the, the name fine would, uh, would potentially indicate, it's got a super thin, wispy leaf blade. And like you said, it grows nice and slow, where, uh, you know, here in Minnesota, you won't have to mow it more than four times per year, I would say. Um, mm -hmm. So, yeah, more similar to a typical turf grass than, say, a native grass or a sedge. Right. Okay. And when you when you would plant something like that, do people typically put that in as seed rather than, well, there's no sod for it, I would guess, at this point. So there are some folks working to develop fine fescue sods, but yeah, right now primarily available as seed, where you establish a fine fescue lawn exactly the same as you would a Kentucky bluegrass lawn or any other lawn. This is the number one uh, species or rather group of species that the university's turf grass science lab is, you know, encouraging folks to use where it's turf grass, just like Kentucky bluegrass, but it's way more sustainable. 
Mm-hmm. And could you overseed a Kentucky bluegrass lawn with some fine fish? So you can. So of course you will then have some variability in the grasses in your lawn where if, if you're looking for perfect uniformity, then perhaps it's not for you. I know that uh, Twin City Seed, the company that I work for, we have lots of different house blends and mixtures that incorporate both. Um, but some, what some folks even want to do is they look at their lawn, they're like, I've got this high input Kentucky bluegrass. Gosh, I wish that was fine fescue and I wish I didn't have to tear everything out to do it. So there actually is a way to kind of convert through overseeding rather than tearing out the old vegetation and putting in all new seeds starting from scratch. Where what you're doing is um, you're kind of just really thinking about the conditions these species need to survive. So what you can do is you put in that fine fescue, you get it to start establishing. So you water a little bit in the first 30 days. You make sure you see those thin uh, wispy blades start to pop up. But then after your fine fescue start to establish, you actually cut back on those inputs. Because if we think about these two different species, one of them, the Kentucky bluegrass, needs to be babied and coddled. It needs its water and fertilizer. And the other, the fine fescue, it thrives when you actually just let it go, when you when you refrain from watering and you refrain from fertilizing. So it's going to sound crazy, but if you actually kind of go lazy with your lawn care... It, the Kentucky bluegrass suffers. The fine fescue is like, hey, this is great for me. And the fine fescue will slowly, again, slowly over time, start to overtake the Kentucky bluegrass. Yeah, so you sort of starve out the Kentucky bluegrass by not treating what it the way it wants to be treated. Yeah, yeah. We're like, when I'm talking to a resident and I'm just ch- talking around, it's what I tell them is, I am encouraging you to do less work in order to be sustainable. Go watch the twins and you will be creating a more sustainable outlook because that five fescue is going to start to take over. The Kentucky bluegrass is going to, you know, potentially die back a little bit because it needs those inputs. Right, right. So, and in the traditional sort of blue bee lawn, you also have the clover, self-heal, and a couple of these flowering species. And are they there largely for pollinator service or are they providing something else in the way of like nitrogen in the soil or some other benefit? So on these bee lawns, we did observe more than 60 species of bees uh, utilizing the bee lawn flowers, at least the flowers included in the original bee lawn mix. But like you started to indicate, um, there are some additional benefits, especially with that uh, Dutch white clover, where the Dutch white clover is a natural nitrogen fixer. It takes that atmospheric nitrogen, fixes it back into the soil to make it available for plants where uh, the reason we apply fertilizers in the first place is because nitrogen is the most important nutrient that plants need in order to grow and thrive. Um, A little like history of the lawn, and I don't want to go too deep into this, but Dutch white clover used to be intentionally included uh, by these uh, turf seed companies for that nitrogen fixation. I won't say what ulterior motives there may or may be as to why that uh, clover is no longer in those mixes and now marketed as a weed for weed killing products, but that is the case we currently see. So for me, and I'm old enough to remember that <laughs> so we had Dutch white clover when I was a kid. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and it's it's still in these lawns largely because you know we put them in for the nitrogen fixation, but for one reason or another, you know, um, certain companies that may or may not have had room for financial gain by marketing these these flowers as a weed uh decided that these flowers are now a weed but what is absolutely true is that dutch white clover is a legume it's a nitrogen fixer and if you have it in your lawn you won't need to apply as much fertilizer as much nitrogen because you have that that natural nitrogen fixation 
This is something that farmers take advantage of all the time. They're putting all sorts of clovers into their landscapes for that nitrogen fixation property. And uh, it used to be in lawns. And I think it's long overdue that we go back to that kind of uh, method, both for our pollinators and, of course, for the health of our lawn. Right. And even if somebody didn't want to go into the sort of the taller species that are sometimes in a bee lawn mix, the clover is short and green and you just mow it and it's fine. It, you know, it's a really easy thing. Oh, to super easy. Where uh, it also establishes really nicely in low quality soils, which unfortunately is rather common for urban and suburban landscapes, um, mm-hmm. oftentimes due to like soil compaction. So this idea that We walk on our lawns quite a bit. The ground becomes hard. It's difficult for roots to establish. Clover can just make it work. Where the self-heal and the creeping thyme are both hardy species as well, but the clover is even just a little bit better at establishing in those low-quality soils. Um, Let's talk about one other turf alternative that I've seen used actually in some really fancy gardens, um, and that's buffalo grass. Have you heard of legacy buffalo grass? It grows quite long and you actually leave it long and then it flops over. If you're not walking on your lawn, it's a really neat alternative, but I don't know how familiar you are with that. So I think you just hit the nail on the head there where you said, if you're not walking on your lawn, it's a great alternative. And if you're not walking at your lawn, if your lawn is going to serve mostly for aesthetic purposes, or you really just want to maximize your ecological impact, there's actually so many different options that that one can consider where I was just in the Minnesota naturalist Facebook page, not five minutes before we started here talking to someone that was interested in lawn alternatives. And whenever I'm talking to a resident, the first question I always ask is what is the desired function of your yard in areas where you want recreation, but you want to be sustainable as well. A Lomo mix or a bee lawn is a great option. If you want to maximize ecological impact, if you know that you are not going to have recreation in certain areas, Buffalo grass, um, tufted hair grass, all sorts of different native grasses, sedges, or even like low growing, like prairie mixes are a fantastic option. But then for me, at least, it always starts with that question. What's your desired function for the green space? And then just picking out the right planting to meet that desired function. Right. I think we've so often just kind of automatically gone to lawn because, I don't know, because that's the culture. When there are places where people very rarely walk on their lawns or don't, they don't have kids playing baseball on it. You know, they don't have the uses that a short lawn makes. It makes sense to have a short lawn for. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Where, I mean, honestly, like, uh, I think my parents could even be an example of this where uh, when me and my brother were younger, the, like you kind of uh, pointed to, our backyard was a little uh, 20 by 10 or 40 by 10 little baseball field, whereas where we had catches and played games and did everything that young kids do. But eventually the kids leave the nest and your lawn serves a completely different function. So now they have all this room where they could plant trees and shrubs and really whatever they want. And I know that my parents aren't the only one in that situation that can be applied to thousands upon thousands of Minnesotans. And it just all comes back to think about the desired function, pick the plants that meet that desired function. Yeah. Well, this has been super helpful. One last question, which is, you know, given all these new alternatives and the the increased interest in being environmentally conscious and pollinators and whatnot, what do you sort of see as the future of lawns? I mean, are they going to change? What, what do you think is going to happen? 
Yeah, and I think we were kind of just having like the predecessor to this conversation, where I think now we're going to start to see people think more critically about how they use the green spaces in their yards. In those areas where there's going to be uh, congregating, where there's going to be recreation, yes, we will likely still have lawn, but hopefully more folks will be transitioning to more sustainable options like a low-growth fescue, like even a tall fescue, or a bee lawn mix. And in those areas where folks you know, come to realize, hey, I'm not using this space Let's convert it to something that doesn't need to be managed as frequently. Let's convert it to something that's more ecologically and pollinator friendly. Let's throw in some wildflowers. Let's throw in some of those plants that our native insects co-evolved with for millions of years, following the work that so many great folks do around the country. I know Doug Tallamy is a name lots of folks are possibly familiar with. Mm. Following those teachings, implementing it into their own yard. Something that I often like to share with folks is, I love prairies. Minnesota is never going to go back to having the prairie coverage that we once had throughout this state. But what we can do is take those species that were so important, so vital to our prairies, and bring them back into our yards, at least to some extent. Where if you could take that purple coneflower, if you could take that bee balm and put it in a nice little uh, wildflower garden where you don't have recreation, where you don't need to run around, that will do so much good for our environment, for our pollinators. Right. And I can tell people from personal experience, once you start planting those native plants, you will be shocked how many bees, birds, butterflies show up at your house, even living in the middle of the city, which is where I live. So important. Yeah. yeah. Great Something advice. that I always try to say, which yeah. you just said perfectly, is that when we bring back these native insects, it has ramifications up, down and across the food web where you're not just helping insects, you're helping those birds, you're helping those small carnivores, you're helping so many different, you know, uh, animals throughout our food webs. Yeah. Okay. Well, this has been a great conversation. Thank you so much, James. Um, I'm going to go out and not mow my lawn right now. So thank you. Yeah. And thank you so much for having me on. Thanks for listening to today's episode and be sure to check out the show notes where we'll have links to more information on today's topic. I'll be back in a couple of weeks with another episode.